0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this Best of 2016 episode, I revisit a conversation from earlier this year with Corey Doctorow, a journalist, activist, and science fiction writer. We discuss the unexpected places where DRM pops up, how it hinders artistic expression and legitimate security research, and the ill-anticipated and often dangerous consequences of copyright exemptions. Enjoy the show. Okay, Corey, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: So we are going to dive right in to the, the news of, of the day for you and the EFF, which is this lawsuit that you all have filed. Um, you're suing the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. As you do. As, as one does on a, yeah. on a regular. Um, so why don't you lay out, uh, if you don't mind, briefly the, the background of, of how this lawsuit came about. And we can kind of start to dive into, I think, the implications that would be most interesting for our audience.
1: Sure. Well, I should start by saying that the lawsuit that we filed is on behalf of uh, two people that may be already familiar to your audience. Mm -hmm. One is a a very eminent security researcher named Matt Green at Johns Hopkins, and the other is a legendary hardware hacker named Bunny Wang, who uh, is best known maybe for having written a book called Hacking the Xbox that details some of his work he did when he was doing his PhD at uh, MIT, where he hacked the Xbox, figured out how to install uh, uh, alternate operating systems, notably GNU Linux on Xboxes. Uh, And we're representing them in a case that challenges the constitutionality of Section 1201 of the DMCA. DMCA is this notoriously complicated copyright law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that was brought in in 1998. And Section 1201 is the part that relates to bypassing digital rights management or digital restrictions management, as some people call it. Uh, The uh, law says that um, it's against the rules to bypass this, even for lawful purposes, and that it imposes these very severe civil and criminal penalties. Uh, There's a $500,000 Five hundred thousand dollar fine and a five year prison sentence for a first offense, provided for in the statute. So the law has been on the books obviously for a very long time since nineteen ninety
0: eight. This was a time when the way technology works now was not, you know, it wasn't written by science fiction writers like yourself, yeah. right? I mean, and and it strike it was it was very much it seemed to me coming out of sort of the the Hollywood movie industry and and the way DVDs were working at the time. Is yeah, ish. That that's right.
1: Yeah, the idea was to create a cause of action to uh, punish people who reverse engineered and reconfigured devices like DVD players and games consoles to do things that the um, manufacturer didn't want done. Uh, and, and you know, notably, though, it, it contained a provision that said that um, removing the DRM, even for a lawful purpose, was potentially unlawful. So it's one thing to say, all right, well, we, we caught you, you know, uh, um abetting someone in an act of copyright infringement. And in order to do that, you had to help them remove the DRM. Therefore, we're going to punish you. But the statute actually provided for punishing people who had never infringed and had not allowed people to infringe, but had just reconfigured the device to do something the manufacturer hadn't wanted. So, like, for example, um, recording a DVD to a VHS cassette, which is something that was not uh, uh, technically possible, Without modification or ripping a DVD to your hard drive, those activities are legal in the same way that recording a TV show from over the air cable is legal. But because there was a DRM that you had to bypass in order to do those, it became illegal. And and really early on, there was a lawsuit uh, where Twenty Six Hundred Magazine, which is this venerable hacker magazine, published uh, Jan Johansen and his friends' source code. For bypassing the DRM on DVDs to allow you to rip a DVD, and they were uh, sued, and we defended them in the Second Circuit in New York, and the judge there found that although the source code that they published was a form of expression protected by the First Amendment, that the statute trumped the First Amendment, that um, there was there was no uh, the the um, the law did not allow them to publish this code. I mean, so, it,
0: was, it was a te- sort of a technically ignorant judge too, right? Yeah. And basically claimed it was theft.
1: Yeah, that's right. He said that the, that the free speech issue here was trumped by the fact that the movie industry was trying to protect themselves from from theft, trying to protect their property from theft. And, and you know, that's not just wrong uh, as like a matter of principle. It's also wrong as a matter of fact and law. The, they're, the thing that... Um, that you could do with the source code, although some of the things you could do with it were infringing on copyright, many of the other things weren't. And the Supreme Court has given us law on this. And in 1984, they ruled on the legality of the VCR. And they said that any technology capable of sustaining a substantial non-infringing use was legal, right? So so if you can do legal things with it, it's legal to make, which is a good thing because like web browsers can be used in infringing ways, <laughs> right? Uh, right. And, and so, you know, it's hard to imagine a digital technology, given that all digital technology works by making copies, it's hard to imagine a digital technology that can't be used to infringe copyright. And so under the standard proposed by this judge in the Second Circuit, uh, it was not going to, uh, you, you, no digital technology would be legal, but. Um, It took a long time for us to be able to find the right circumstances to bring uh, another challenge. One reason for that is that challenging the civil provisions of the DMCA required that we wait for someone to sue someone who wanted to stand up. And so uh, you, you don't get to just go to a judge and ask them to adjudicate civil law. Someone has to bring a suit. And the one suit that we really had a good chance with was when Ed Felton led a consortium of academics who uh, reported on serious defects in a DRM called the Secure Digital Music Initiative, SDMI, and uh, were going to present their paper on it at the second Usenex security conference. And the Recording Industry Association of America filed suit against him and uh, against USENIX, and said that the ability of eminent computer scientists, Ed Ed was then at Princeton, now he's the deputy CTO of the White House, the ability of these eminent computer scientists to talk about math was contingent on approval from record executives. And um, that was not going to fly into court. And when we stepped up to defend Ed, the RIA beat all speed records in withdrawing their complaint against Ed so that they could keep the statute intact, because they knew that they were going to lose. Yeah, they saw that. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of a, a, a really significant moment. It, it, it told you what they thought about the statute's constitutional muster. So a couple of things changed in the last decade. Um, the first is that the kinds of technologies that have access controls for copyrighted works have gone from these narrow slices, consoles and DVD players to everything, right? The, Cars, the
0: phone in your hand, right? Yeah. Right.
1: Well, the car in your driveway, right? <laughs> if it's got an operating system or a networking stack, it has a copyrighted work in it, right? Software is copyrightable. That's like how the GPL works, is it's a copyright license. So if copyright's not copyrightable, then then you know white is black, up is down, and you know, lines will lie down with lambs. So software is definitely copyrightable, everything has software, therefore, anything that the manufacturer just sticks a, a very thin scrim of DRM around, they can invoke the DMCA to defend. And and that defense includes the ability to prevent people from making parts, right? All you need to do is like uh, add a, a little integrity check like we've had in printers for forever that says, is this part an original manufacturer's part or is it a third party part? And if it's an original manufacturer's part, it, it uses it. And if it's not, it, it refuses to use it. And bypassing that check, because that check restricts access to a copyrighted work, is potentially a felony, and so, car manufacturers use it to lock you into buying original
0: parts. Yeah, that's uh, why I want only old cars. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, there's lots
1: of good reasons to want computers in your car. Like, anti lock brakes are good, right? Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's the statute that's the problem, not the computer. You know, this right. is a live issue because Apple has announced that they, or, or that there have been leaks from Apple that suggest that they may be deprecating the 3.5 millimeter audio jack on their phones and just using uh, a digital. Uh, interface for this and that digital interface if they put drm on it they can specify at a very minute level which conduct you and the manufacturers that want to make products to plug into your phone can engage in and they can invent laws right they can, like Congress has never said you know you're not allowed to record anything coming off your iphone but they could set a flag where some audio coming out of that digital interface would have a no record bit And then they could refuse to give a license to decrypt the audio to anyone unless they agreed to accept that no record bit and honor it. And bypassing that would be illegal. So, you know, this is a live issue in lots of domains. It's in uh, insulin pumps. It's in voting machines. uh, It's in tractors. Uh, John Deere locks up the farm data that that you generate when you drive your tractor around. If you want to use that data to find out about your soil density and automate your seed broadcasting, you have to buy that data back from John Deere in a bundle with seed from from big agribusiness consortia like Monsanto, who licensed the data from Deere. And, and so this is metastasized. So that's one thing that's changed is it's become really urgent to do something about this, because in addition to this consumer rights dimension where you know, your ability to like add things to your device, take it for independent service, add features, reconfigure it, are all subject to approval from manufacturers.
0: It's a a safety issue now too, though, as you know, know, insulin pumps, you know, uh, driverless cars, I mean, and so we can't, as individuals or people we might, uh, you know, work with to help us, we can't actually even begin to understand the potential safety issues of those kinds of devices.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the other piece of it is that security researchers have been prosecuted under the DMCA on more than one occasion, and, and in one instance, we actually had a, a foreign security researcher presented at American tech conference thrown in jail by Adobe for revealing defects in the um, Adobe eBook DRM. And so the uh, the all of these things have become something like a no go zone for security researchers. And last summer, the, sec- the the copyright office entertained petitions from people who've been impacted by Section 12 of the DMCA. And several security researchers filed briefs saying that they had discovered grave defects in products as varied as voting machines and insulin pumps and, and cars and many others, and had been told by their counsel that they couldn't disclose because in so doing, they would reveal information that might help someone bypass DRM and thus face uh, felony prosecution and civil lawsuits. So that's the first thing that's changed, right? Is the DMCA is in everything, just as the security of everything is becoming more important, and security researchers and their counsel are reluctant to to come forward with revelations about uh, problems in DRM because of the DMCA. Right. But the the second thing that changed is there were two Supreme Court cases, Golan and Eldred, and in both of those cases, uh, the Supreme Court was asked about copyright and how it squares up with the First Amendment, because. There are some obvious problems with copyright and free speech. Copyright is a government monopoly over who can use certain combinations of words or certain pictures or convey certain messages in, in specific language. And so that seems like it has a problem with the First Amendment. And in, in both of these cases, Eldred and Golan, the Supreme Court said the reason that copyright is constitutional, the reason that the First Amendment doesn't trump copyright, is that copyright has these escape valves. Uh, one is fair use. And then the other one is uh, what's called the traditional contours of copyright. Um, That would be like copyright only covers uh, uh, expressions and not ideas. Uh, Copyright uh, doesn't cover non-creative works and so on. All the things that that tell you what is and isn't copyrightable. And because uh, DRM can be used to restrict uh, fair use, because it can trump the traditional contours and because it's very urgent, uh, and because it has criminal penalties, we were able to bring a challenge against it. Because when there are criminal penalties, you can you don't have to wait for someone to sue you. You can sue the government. You can say we have uh, a credible uh, reason to believe that this action that we are likely to undertake will give rise to criminal liability, and we demand that the government or that the courts tell us whether or not this will be criminal conduct before we engage in it. And so Bunny Wang, he, he made this thing that um, adds overlays to HDCP signals. Uh, it doesn't decrypt them, so it doesn't violate the DMCA uh, and he wants to expand it so that it can be used to record HDCP signals. Uh, some of the things that um, he wants to uh, allow people to do are things that are fair use. So he has standing to ask the government to tell him whether or not uh, this is a criminal act, so that the judicial branch of the government will, will rule on this and tell him whether he could face criminal liability. Matthew Green has a National Science Foundation grant to study a bunch of technologies that have DRM on them, and that the Copyright Office explicitly said uh, would not be uh, allowed uh, to do research on. Uh, The the Copyright Office did grant a limited exemption to the DMCA to research consumer products, but not things like um, aviation systems or payment systems, which which Green wants to research, in the same way that they also said that you couldn't bypass uh, DRM to make uh, narrative films, to, to take extracts from movies, to make narrative films, uh, which is a thing that Bunny wants to allow people to do. So we have one branch of the government saying we won't grant an exemption for this. We have the, the highest court in the land saying that without fair use, copyright is not constitutional. And we have two defendants or plaintiffs, rather, who uh, could be criminal defendants in the future if they engage in this conduct that they want to engage in, that's consistent with conduct that they've engaged in in the past, and um, that could impose really serious criminal liability. And so this gives us standing to now ask the copyright office uh, or ask the, the, um, the, the courts to tell us whether the copyright office really does have the power to decide which things they're going to grant exemptions for, whether or not the DMCA can apply to technologies that enable fair use, uh, and whether it's constitutional. And if we win, that would effectively gut the uh, Section 121 of the DMCA for all of the anti-competitive and all of the uh, security limiting applications that it's found so far.
0: I mean, which is a, which is a huge scope beyond just you know, the things we're discussing here. I, I wanted to ask, and, and maybe it's, this comes back into play if, if that does happen, but I wanted to ask about this, the triannual exemption process, because this seems like, to me, another piece of this that is designed um, to make this very painful for, for those who want to do these kinds of things, right? So, there, so somebody, somebody could say reasonably, well, but every three years you get to go in front of the Library of Congress and, you know, ask for these exemptions. But um, it seems like there's an undue amount of burden on the people who, who are, um, are asked, you know, who want to do that, And there's a huge amount of gray area in terms of of how those things are interpreted and how fair use is interpreted. And as far as I can understand, it's only granted for, say, three years. And so you'd have to you'd have to keep doing this, right?
1: Yeah, that's all correct. So every three years, the Copyright Office holds the triennial 1201 exemption hearings. And the Library of Congress hears petitions from people who've uh, had uh, their lawful conduct interfered with by Section 1201. Uh, of the DMCA. And then they take the view that if they, um, that that they can just decide which of these exemptions to grant and, um, and, and what those exemptions will look like. So if they, if they get two different applications, they can arbitrarily merge them and then deny part of them and, and do lots of other things. They think that, that what they're engaged in is a, what they call like a balancing act between uh, the people who make DRM and the people who want to remove DRM and um, and that's not our view. Uh, it doesn't our feel view is, terribly balanced. Yeah. Well, our view is that the statute doesn't say that, right? That the statute plus the, the Supreme Court rulings tell you that their job is to presumptively grant any application for any exemption that enables fair use, because fair use is the thing that makes copyright constitutional. And so any fair use in order for copyright to remain constitutional has to be technologically feasible and legally feasible. Otherwise, you lose constitutionality in, in, in copyright. So that's that's part of our, our petition here. The other reason, though, that, that um, the Copyright Office hearings are inadequate, not just that you have to go every three years and they get to make it up as they go along, but they can't grant a tools exemption, only a use exemption. So, for example, they, they granted an exemption to allow you to uh, jailbreak your mobile phone Mm -hmm. and your tablets. Uh, For a while, they weren't gonna grant an exemption for tablets uh, in the last but one uh, the version of this, they they said they wouldn't grant an exemption for tablets because they couldn't tell the difference between tablets and laptops. I always say that if you can't tell the difference between those <laughs> things, maybe you shouldn't be in charge you of regulating be, them.,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: but oh but God. they uh, but they granted this exemption for tablets and phones to jailbreak them and use alternate stores. And so what that means is that you personally are allowed to write software to jailbreak your personal phone or tablet in order to use an alternate store. But you aren't allowed to share that tool with anyone else, and you aren't allowed to publish how it works or any information that would help someone else make that tool. And so we have this kind of weird situation where to engage in this legal activity, you have to engage in something illegal, which is trafficking in a tool, and also something that from a security perspective is hugely problematic, right? Like anyone can see why you wouldn't want randos Mm -hmm. providing binaries That root your mobile device, and that they are like by by of necessity, those randos are anonymous, and you have no recourse uh, if it turns out that they've like poisoned your device with malware or just made horrible mistakes. And it's illegal
0: for other people to look at it, and and it's illegal
1: to look at it and tell you how it works. Yeah, like this is just like a a disaster from stem to stern. You know, when we're talking about the supercomputer in your pocket with a camera and a microphone that knows who all your friends are, like that that. You know, like again, it's like legalizing using heroin, but not legalizing selling heroin. Uh, which effectively happened in in uh, Canada, and uh, then a whole bunch of people died of heroin overdoses because they got adulterated and uh, uh, or more pure than they were used to heroin. Like if you've decided the activity, the harm reduction demands that the activity be legal, then harm reduction also has this other dimension where where you have to make the activity safe as well. And we have made the activity as unsafe as possible. It's really it's really terrible. So. You know, this, the the security side of this really matters because we hear about vulns and and days and breaks against IoT devices every day in uh, ways that are like really frankly terrifying. You know, uh, in last uh, winter it was baby monitors in kids' yeah. bedrooms that were you know y- you had like griefers speaking to babies out of and like shouting obscenities at babies, and then they had like movable cameras that could be remote controlled. And when the parents walked in the room and saw the baby monitor swearing at their baby, the camera swiveled around and this strange voice said, "Uh-oh, mommy's in the room." Right, and like this week, it was like ransomware for IoT thermostats, and uh, you know, breaks against CCTVs that people put in their houses, drop cams that people put in their houses. Well,
0: and these, these people don't have to petition the Library of Congress to do this, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Right, and 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 so you know, it's it's already a dumpster fire. I mean, you think about like the the, the conditions under which IoT companies operate, right? They have one to 2% hardware margins that are they know are going to fall to zero margins if their product takes off because their product will be cloned and mass made in China, probably in the same factory where their official runs are happening. So their business plan, the thing that they show to VCs to get the money to go into the business is we're going to have like an app store and we're going to monetize data. So they design a device that, first of all, has DRM in it, because the App Store model really only works if you can sue people who start rival App Stores. Uh, It it, uh, is designed to treat the owner as a hostile party and to disguise what's going on for them so that they can't disable the DRM. It's designed to gather as much data as possible. The company itself has six months to a year runway, and they have two uh, terminal conditions. In 99% of the circumstances, they will simply go broke, and the company will fold up and none of the people responsible for making decisions will uh, ever face any consequences if that data subsequently leaks. Uh, and in the other uh, uh, 1% or less of the, uh, of the circumstances, they will be bought up by a much bigger company like Google that will extinguish the fire before it can rage out of control. And anyway, it's going to be someone else's problem. And every dollar that they spend on security engineering that is intended to keep that the integrity of that data going for longer than their runway is a dollar they don't have to spend on runway to keep them alive until they can get acquisition. And so they're all designed with security as an afterthought. They're all designed with the minimum viable security to make this product not immediately burst into flames after you put it inside your body or put your body inside of it. Uh, and um, security researchers perforce are uh, face total brutal liability for investigating these devices and telling people which ones are and aren't safe. It is completely nightmarish.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it, the, this basically is predicated on the notion that an individual could theoretically look into this stuff themselves. Most Individuals on the planet now who hold these very powerful things in their hands and wander around, you know, um, being, you know, like you said, people knowing where they and their friends are, have no capacity to do that. You know, a person used to be able to possibly pop the hood on their car and figure out how it was working. Um, That is not the case with anything now. And so the we we as a as a as a community of humans who would like to not die and be safe um, and take care of our children are becoming increasingly reliant on these kinds of researchers. I, I think that's very chilling, right?
1: Sure. Well, and one of the things that our, our lawsuit would provide for is a, a pro-security business model, right? Like, so on the one hand, you could start a commercial consultancy that would come in and deworm your IoT household, right? That could come in and like jailbreak all the devices and check their firmware loads and replace the firmware loads with open uh, firmware or patched firmware or something else that, that sits in between it, you know, the, the, all of those things, all that commercial stuff as well is off limits and would be would be available in the same way that like third party parts and service are, are something that it turns out that you can enable if there are no legal impediments, you know, the, the uh, hardware service and support market, In the US, for all classes of goods from like lawnmowers to cars to air conditioners to computers, is two to 4% of America's GDP. It's a gigantic multi billion dollar sector. And in many cases, these are like small and medium sized enterprises. They're intrinsically local, right? You can't like send your car to India for service. Uh, And um, a lot of them start by downloading a bunch of free and open manuals from places like iFixit. Uh, getting onto the part stream from places like Alibaba, and then applying ingenuity and a kind of networked makership where they say, does anyone know how to fix this thing that I can't figure out how to fix because the, that part is no longer available, so I'm going to have to do part-level service. And People collaboratively figure it out, and that becomes part of the overall corpus of knowledge in a way that's very familiar to anyone who's ever done software engineering, right? Like that's you know, it, uh, like once again, like there's that that fake O'Reilly book which is like pasting in stack yes. exchange code yeah, for, that, you one. know, yeah, that that you know, we all know how to do that, right? And it's it, although there are like problems with that where sometimes you could get bad solutions or non-solutions or people could inject malware. There, there, that is not in and of itself, an invalid way of doing things. We, we often hire people to follow recipes for us, uh, people who are skilled. Many doctors follow recipes. In fact, if you go and get an IOT insulin pump or pacemaker, a large amount of what's going on there is pure recipe following. Your doctor is not an electrical engineer unless you're very lucky. And so <laughs> all of those electrical engineering elements of that is just the doctor following a a, a protocol that's been designed and and vetted by uh, other people. And it's just like with every other technical discipline, your doctor very may may well get on an email list or its equivalent and say, I'm about to do this tricky thing that's a variation on something that's well understood. Has anyone ever tried this tricky thing? Uh, And if so, how did it go? And if not, how do you think I should approach it? Uh, and so we're just saying that that should be the norm as it's always been the norm for everything, especially now that everything has the power to leak everything and attack you in horrific ways.
0: So on that note, that everything has the power to leak everything. I wanted to add to that everywhere. Right. So this is right. a this is U.S. law. But right. what what are sort of the international possible you know, implications or ramifications of this?
1: Well, so the U.S. trade representative has been a kind of uh, patient zero in a global epidemic of, of shitty copyright law. Uh, every country that that trades significantly with the U.S. has had to adopt their own version of Section 121 of the DMCA in order to maintain that trade relationship. So like Canada got it as Bill C-11. Uh, Australia and New Zealand got it through their free to tra- trade agreements with the U.S.A., uh, the Central American Free Trade Agreements and the Andean Free Trade Agreements uh, brought the, the the equivalent laws into most of Central and South America's laws. Uh, in Europe, it's uh, Article 6 of the EUCD. Uh, any country that accedes to the World Trade Organization, you know, Russia got its version through its WTO accession laws. Uh, and so this is everywhere. And it, it represents a kind of suicide pact, right? Like every country is saying this is immensely profitable, useful line of business will be off limits to our companies if it's off limits to your companies. Uh, and and that's been uh, modestly successful since the late 90s when, when this started to happen. Uh, but if we can repeal the law, or even if we can get to the point where entrepreneurs can tell the direction of travel and go, this law will be repealed in tractable time we need to start tooling up and offering services and businesses on the, uh, on the assumption that this conduct will be legalized when the UFF lawsuit terminates, uh, that uh, all of those other countries will have no reason to keep the law on the books. You know, suicide pacts are supposed to be mutual. If Hungary or, or if Russia or if, if Brazil keep their DMCA law on the books, it, it won't stop people in those countries from breaking DRM. It'll just mean that only American businesses sell them the tools and services to do it, and so only American businesses benefit from it. And so, you know, in this case... We think that the potentially long delay between us filing the lawsuit and its final adjudication, probably at the Supreme Court, is a feature and not a bug. We, we want there to be this, this shift in the way that Americans conduct themselves. We, we want there to be this normative shift so that by the time the, the court hears our case at the, the highest level, it beca- it's become very normal in America that if you get a device that's locked down in ways that restrict your legal rights, that you just take it to a rival business that unlocks it for you. And we also want foreign governments to have uh, already challenged or dropped their own versions of the DMCA, because that diffuses a couple of the the most significant risks to our lawsuit. One is that the U.S. Trade Representative could come along and say, you know, Your Honor, if if you give the EFF their way, the uh, uh, our, our foreign trading partners will be very cheesed off with us. If this is already a dead letter in all those other territories, it won't matter. And also that, you know, if the judges see this as normal, they'll be reluctant to vote against it. Uh, In in 1984, when the Supreme Court ruled on VCRs, there were 6 million VCRs in America's living room, and they would have seemed absolutely out to lunch if they had ruled against VCRs. The fact that it took eight years for the VCR to get to the Supreme Court from its introduction and the initial litigation against it turned out to be the thing that saved it. And so we're really counting on people looking at all of the margins that are, are uh, defended by DRM, all these high margin software stores, parts and service markets that really represent gouging of customers and say, you know, I don't really care much about um, DRM or security research or customer rights, but I do see a market opportunity here. You know, Jeff Bezos once told the publishers, your margin is my opportunity. Here's this giant opportunity right if Apple is making 30% off of every one of its independent software vendors for its multi-billion device iOS platform then you know big companies like Walmart and little startups, alike could produce subsidized hardware free dongles that jailbreak your iPhone, install a third party software store, and then they could go and cherry pick the 10 or 100 or 1000 leading independent software vendors and say, we'll give you a 15% margin if you go exclusive to our store instead of Apple's. And then we get real competition and the people who make software would be able to get a better deal. Because as every economist will tell you, a buyer's market hurts sellers, right? If, if the only people offering a marketplace for Apple's devices is Apple, then Apple sets the terms for the people supplying that software. If two companies or 10 companies or 100 companies are competing to bring software for Apple devices to Apple customers, then the software vendors will have will be able to play those intermediaries off against each other and get a better deal, and that's ultimately what a competitive marketplace is supposed to deliver.
0: Agreed. Um, and I actually, I actually feel like I want to, I'm going to leave it on that note because I think um, that's a piece of this that wasn't even as clear. Um, It's clear for security researchers and and the safety angle, I think, is clear for, you know, sort of individual consumers. Um, But for the market and the industry as a whole, there's a very unchilling effect um, that can come out of that, that that people are probably only going to start. Some people, as you say, are probably already very aware of the ramifications, Um, but it will be good for it to be more.
1: Well, so, before we go, uh, can yes. I finish by, by mentioning this W3C stuff that we're working oh, on and yeah, that relates yes. directly right. to this, and that is a live issue. So the World Wide Web Consortium historically has been the leading standards body for open standards for the web. Uh, when you make a standards-compliant web browser, you make a W3C standards-compliant. And for a lot of complicated and sad reasons, they decided that they would standardize DRM, mostly because apps were starting to eat into browsers and the browser vendors were demanding it, and uh, the W3C was worried about losing its relevance. And so for the last three years, they've been working on something called encrypted media extensions, or EME, which will create the situation where for the first time in history, implementing a standards-compliant browser will mean creating a piece of software that is covered by the DMCA and laws like it that security researchers won't be able to audit without legal risks. And so we've asked them – well, first we asked them not just not to do this because we think it's a terrible idea – and they weren't willing to do that. But uh, we said, OK, well, you, you already have this policy that says if you join the W3C, you have to surrender the right to sue under your patents uh, against people who or, or sue people who implement W3C uh, standards, that um, there's this non-aggression pact uh, for W3C standards by W3C members. And we said, you're getting a new uh, related right when you sign up for the W3C and make DRM. Mm-hmm which is the right to sue people who break your DRM, but don't break any other laws. People who break your DRM for legal reasons, including security researchers, uh, but also including like people who break DRM and add an accessibility feature, like Dan Kaminsky, who's this eminent security researcher that many listeners will know. Yeah. Dan He's, came on, up he's with,
0: on our program committee for the yeah. conference. So, so yeah.
1: Dan Dan designed this cool thing where he, you could... Um, change the color, color gamut in real time of a video stream to adapt it to the specific color blindness of the viewer just super cool and like the person he demoed it on like burst into tears because she was so excited to be able to finally see properly and um, you need to be able to use the clear text to do that many countries enshrine the right to adapt copyrighted works for the uh, for people who have disabilities but not if you have to bypass DRM. And so we said to the W3C, for accessibility, for interoperability, for competition, uh, for all of these good reasons and and security besides, you should make your members promise not to use their DRM rights, their DMCA rights, to attack people who engage in otherwise lawful conduct but have to break the DRM to do it. And the first time we proposed this, it was when the uh, EME group's charter was going to be renewed in December. We had nine W3C members sign up. Uh, it wasn't quite enough to, uh, to, to win a majority, although it was very close. The W3C decided to allow the, the proposal to go ahead without, um, without further safeguards, although they convened like a 90-day discussion. Uh, and after those 90 days, because although there had been a lot of progress, there hadn't been consensus, They just they just said, all right, well, this is no longer on the table. We now have 17 members confirmed and ready to block any further progress on this specification. The specification was supposed to go to recommendation or, or, or draft recommendation this week, but they've been delayed because they had some problems with their test cases. In the meantime, we also have this massive petition that's been signed by some of the world's leading security and cryptography researchers, including names that you'll know like Bruce Schneier and Ron Rivest and mm-hmm. Alex Halderman, and um, that is uh, uh, live. And if your listeners send me an email, Corey at EFF.org and include what country they're in and what institutional affiliation, if any, they want to list. I will add their names to it. And this open letter to the W3C is showing that security researchers really care about this. And we've got so many members signed up, including the Royal National Institute for Blind People, Media Access Australia, and Benetech, which are three leading blind rights groups, uh, that I think that um, we have a very good chance of beating this back and making a difference here. So again, that's quarry at EFF.org. Give me your institutional affiliation and in whatever country you're in and I'll sign your name to this.
0: Fantastic. And thank you for that. Yeah, it's 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 hard to watch it's hard to watch them go in that direction. Um it's it's so contrary to the charter I feel like of W three C. Like
1: Yeah. Yeah, really. I'm 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 very sad about it. Uh, I think the W3C has historically done the work of the angels. Uh, I understand that uh, the web is is under real grave attack from many quarters right now, and that um, doing DRM. For them, feels like a minor compromise. Like there's already DRM that's not standards defined in browsers. Although that's not going to be true for much longer. The one of the things HTML5 is doing is sunsetting NSAPI, which is the the API through which DRM ran, but was also a, a security nightmare. And so, with that, with one of the reasons that they have to make standards defined DRM is that without it, there's just no easy way to get DRM into browsers. And so, I understand that they think that it's a minor compromise. I think that it's like a major compromise, and I think that they need to do better here, and that we can we can make them do better. You know, the 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 every one of us sometimes makes a bad call, and we need our friends to intervene to stop that bad call from spiraling out of control, and that's what I think we're doing with the W3C.
0: Yeah, I mean that is a better opportunity than sitting around, you know. Just waiting to see what the you know Library of Congress is going to hurl down at people. There, it isn't. It is an open, fairly open process, and um, and it can be influenced. So I hope you all the huge success on that. I hope.
1: And and you know these are related too, because one of the things that any kind of legislative or or even uh, litigation oriented reform to the DMCA and laws like it will benefit from is a record that shows that whenever people sit down to do serious technical work, they first have to dispense with the DMCA because it gets in the way that, you know, like what better evidence could you have that the DMCA isn't fit for purpose? So, you know, on those lines, we've asked the FDA to make a rule that says, if you make a medical implant, you have to promise never to invoke the DMCA against people who report vulnerabilities in it. We asked the FCC to do this for set-top boxes. Uh, The open source initiative has amended its definition of open standard to say that if you're making a DRM standard, you have to take the DMCA and laws like it off the table, otherwise you can't call it open standard. Mm-hmm. And in places like the UK, uh, there are lots of government uh, contracts that you can't bid on unless you're you're making unless you're you're making your technology according to open standards. So this has real impact on the kinds of technology that people will be able to make. And uh, it, it's a it's a it's not enough, but it's a great stopgap. While we wait for these laws to be abolished, and it'll help us abolish these laws.
0: Fantastic. Um, so I'm going to wrap up by asking you the same question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. One of my goals is to bring especially defensive security practitioners out of the shadows. Um, a lot of their successes are, are are silent or not seen. You know, you don't hear about th- that kind of stuff until shit goes sideways. Um, mm-hmm. And so we uh, we're convinced that everybody has their own superpower that just may not be, you know, revealed yet. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your superpower is. Right. Uh, What
1: is my superpower? I guess my superpower is to uh, try and explain boring technical things to normal humans. That's, uh, that's the thing that I've I've really devoted the last 20 years to, and particularly in, in fiction as well, to try and find the exciting stories. I don't know if you've into a techno thriller recently but in, unless it was uh, mr robot uh every techno thriller story you'll see seems to start from the premise that computers are intrinsically boring uh and that we need to make them do impossible and and really dumb things in order to tell an interesting story about them you know my favorite example is that text on computer screens inevitably makes this noise <laughs> and appears one one character at a time can you imagine like reading your email that way yeah. like holy moly it would just like just make me shoot myself and you know the premise of books like little brother is that computers are super duper interesting and that the problems that we solve with them and the problems that they create for us and the way that we solve those problems is as interesting as the imaginary problems that have never occurred for computer users like the polymorphic virus code that appears on your screen is a laughing ascii or 3d skull uh and um And that if you tell those stories and engage people in them, you not only give them a a rip roaring narrative, you also give them a uh, an opportunity to understand technology better and to improve their intuition about where technology puts them at risk and where it doesn't.
0: Yeah, it's the it's the notion that computers are this other right They're this very other thing. And and Mm -hmm. they're they're made by humans Um, and and software is very human in ways that we don't attribute it. Um, and so, the, you know, the computers are part of that narrative arc of being human. Um, but they are, like you say, rarely treated as such.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, security research is, um, uh, it, it, it isn't super visually stimulating, of course. Uh, a lot of it is just like looking at lines of text and then typing lines of text and then hoping that you get a, a specific kind of prompt back. But on the other hand, the, the way that security researchers think and the matrix that they're embedded in and the way that they collaborate and compete with each other, that is super interesting. Like Gabrielle Coleman wrote this book uh, called um, something whistleblower spy, uh, that was about anonymous. She's an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. It was called Hacker Hoaxer Whistleblower Spy.
0: Oh, right. Uh, Tinker Told her Tinker Tailor yeah, Soldier yeah yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And it's about it's about anonymous. And it's it's about anonops from mm-hmm. the IRC perspective. So it's not about the code that they wrote, it's about the arguments they had about the code that they wrote. And it gives you a really good sense of the thinking that went into uh, the anonops ops and um, the kinds of technical mastery that they had and didn't have. And it, it's it, it allows you to derive like general principles about what security works and what security doesn't work. Even if you lack that kind of deep technical knowledge, because you can understand the kind of human factors that go into it. Like, like there was just a great article in 2600 about a, a kid, I assume it was a kid, he wrote like a kid, who wanted to uh, do a census of all the um, fiber modems in Malaysia, uh, because there's two major brands, and one of them has an unchangeable default root login and password that gives you total access to the uh, customer's LAN. And he wanted to know how many of them there were. And he knew how to write a Python automator for a Mac browser that would log in and, uh, and try the login and password, but he didn't know how to write a, a lean Python browser emulator that could render the login form And uh, and uh, go to the each IP address in turn and see whether or not the default uh, password would go in. And so he had to the only thing he knew how to do technically was just automate this this browser automation script. And so because computers have gotten a lot cheaper uh, and because cloud computing has gotten really, really cheap. He was able to just buy millions of emulated Macintosh instances. So rather than like a generation ago, (laughs) he would have had to just learn a lot more Perl. Now he just needs to find a place where he can get millions of emulated Macs and then he can run his automation script against them. And then he hit this other problem, which was that um, the uh, only cheap Amazon clouds with emulated Macs are in the U.S. and the latency was too high in Malaysia. The Singaporean data center for Amazon that was really close, uh, was too expensive to rent time in, but that data center, you could, you could do spot time in whenever they had an idle machine, Mm -hmm. you could instantiate your machine on it and it would be really, really cheap, but you'd have to vacate it on 60 seconds notice. And so he just said, well, I don't really care how long each process runs for provided that it terminates by reporting its progress. So for $10, he was able to conduct a census of every IP in Malaysia And and in like three days and return the list of all vulnerable machines. And this is like you don't need to be a security expert or to even understand anything about programming to understand how like this new fact about different kinds of clouds has been a game changer for different kinds of attack models and security.
0: Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other podcast and a whole other beef of mine, but it's this notion Especially that you have to be hiring these "quote unquote" highly technical people into security positions, and that's bullshit. What you need to do is hire people who are good critical thinkers.
1: Yeah, I mean, it helps that they have technical knowledge as well.
0: But you but can get that, right? You can't. But you can get that. If, if you're 24 years old and you don't know how to think critically, good luck. Like you're mm-hmm. not—you don't acquire that as uh, in a short of time as you do, like what he just did, right? Right,
1: right. So yeah, so that's right. And so the the, the people in on the defense side of this in Malaysia, who whose assumptions were that um nobody would ever be able to conduct a census of Malaysian cable modems uh, those people were not thinking critically and by just engaging in a little bit of imaginative thought this guy showed how something that would have been transcendentally hard not so very long ago turned out to be something that he could just bodge a solution for in really short order
0: oh okay we could keep going but I <laughs> <laughs> I right. gonna I'm going to call it now and thank you so much uh, for joining me if we can I'll try to put um links to some of the things we talked about either in the lower third or when we do a post about this so people can sure um, can get to that stuff so thank you again so much cory for joining oh not us. at all Courtney. thanks for listening you can find us on twitter i'm at courtney nash and cory is at doctor o you can subscribe to the security podcast through itunes stitcher TuneIn, or soundcloud so you never miss an episode